Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Here at Ascent, we, uh, we really like to just pick books of the Bible and walk through them. I believe you guys come not to hear my knowledge, but to hear the Word of God preached. Uh, and so what I like to do is just start uh, with a book of the Bible, and we walk through it line by line, and we just see what God would have to say to us. And uh, today we're starting a brand new book, uh, the book of First Peter, and it's actually a continuation. We just finished the Gospel of Mark, which is the story of Jesus and his disciples. And it comes from the perspective of Peter. And we really fell in love with Peter, or I did through the Gospel of Mark, because I got to see this guy who was perfectly imperfect. It was a guy whose faith wavered often. It was a guy who made mistakes, and yet he continued to pursue Jesus with all that he had. And I think that's a really great example. It gives guys like me encouragement who are not perfect. I mess up. I, I do things wrong. I waver in my faith. And yet to know that Jesus still has a place for me in his kingdom. And in fact, he didn't just have a place for Peter, but Peter, every time we see him listed in the list of the disciples, is always listed first. He was the leader of the New Testament church. And as we come into 1 Peter, Peter is now at the end of his life. He's coming to the end of his ministry. And he's starting to write down recollections and memories that he has of his time with Jesus and what he wants the churches to know. Because as he gets older, he wants his memories, he wants the legacy of Jesus to outlive him. And he has something to say to the church here. It's actually to several different churches, which we'll see. Uh, But it speaks to you and I in today's day and age. And here's the part that really grabbed my attention about what my grandma just read. At the end of that, this should really blow all of our minds. It, It says... The gospel that we get to experience, that you and I, if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, the gospel you experience, it says about that gospel, the angels long to catch a glimpse. And our translation doesn't even fully grab that word. The word long there is actually better translated lust or covet. They lust or covet to experience what we experience. They're like dogs with their tongues hanging out. They want it. They pant for what we get to experience. These are angels who have been with God for thousands, millions, we don't know, billions of years. And yet they are not bored with the gospel you and I experience. They long for more. And I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He's my favorite dead preacher. And uh, you should all have a favorite dead preacher. Angels, this is what he says. This is 18th century, so it's really cool language. Angels have never sinned. Consequently, they need no atonement or forgiveness. Never having been defiled, they need not be washed, yet they take a deep interest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What shall I say then of the madness of those who are defiled by sin, but have no interest in the fountain where they can be washed whiter than snow? Friends, that's convicting for me today because quite often it's like, yeah, the gospel, but Blake, look at, you know, look at the problems in my life. You know, look at what all the things I've got going on. And, and my joy is not usually rooted in the gospel. I'm not panting to know more of the gospel. And I'm the one that actually needs it. And the angels who don't need it pant and long for it all the more. See, the gospel should not be something that we just think about for 30 minutes, 45 minutes on Sunday when a guy's up there talking about it. The gospel should totally and radically change the entire way we live our lives. It is such good news. And what I want to do today is whether you're excited about it or not, you're going to get 14 points from the first 13 verses of 1 Peter why this is good news for us. 
I, I'm trying to limit myself to two minutes per point, so buckle up. It's going to be a lot of fun, and if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but I'm the one with the microphone, and that's what we're doing today, okay? <laughs> All right, and then we're going to baptize some girls, and we're going to celebrate what God has done in their lives. I'm going to pray one more time because I really need God's help. Father, thank you for the gospel that I get to experience. God, thank you for the good news that you send your son to take my place. Thank you for, for all of these 14 points we are about to walk through together as a church family. Lord, any one of them we could spend the rest of our life pondering. And yet, Lord, these don't even scratch the surface of all the good news that is found in the gospel. Lord, I just pray that today we would begin to center our minds and our hearts on you. Maybe for the first time somebody would say, you know what, I, I want to experience that gospel for myself. Not with head knowledge, but, but I want to know that gospel. I want to be the type of person that loves you in the way he speaks of, that has the peace that he speaks of. Lord, and I pray that today you would stir their hearts to make that decision, to truly make you the Lord of their lives, the Savior of their lives. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Let's jump in. First Peter chapter 1. It says, Peter, so who wrote the book? Peter. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter is writing to these churches in these various areas, and he's probably writing to the Jewish people who have said Jesus is the Messiah. So they're still in the Jewish faith, like when the, the, the Christian faith first started, it wasn't like we have the Christian faith and we have the Jewish faith. No, it was Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish faith. He's the pinnacle. And so Peter would write to the churches, uh, the synagogues that said, you know what? We do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we have the Apostle Paul who would write to people like us who are Gentiles, who don't know anything about Jewish history. So Peter is writing to the Jewish people, but he actually, this is really cool, he grafts us into it, which is to say that the Gentiles now share in the promises of the Jewish people. That all the blessings in the Bible that are for Jerusalem and Israel now are for the church of Jesus Christ. God's people are no longer a nation. God's people is the church of Jesus, which is amazing. So Peter writes this letter, and it's to be circulated to all these different churches. And you can imagine how excited these churches would be to get a letter from the Apostle Peter. I can't even imagine what it would be like. I guess something close to that would be like if Billy Graham wrote our church a letter. And it was like, we got a letter from Billy Graham which would be really weird because he's dead now. But you get the point. We'd be like, whoa, this is amazing. He's talking to us. And so here's Peter. He's writing a letter to these various churches. And then it says this uh, in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, going into verse 2, and here's the first thing we rejoice about. It says this, To those living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontius, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Number one reason you should rejoice is you have been selected by the Father. Well, I want to let that sink in. Before the foundations of the earth, God said, I want Blake. God said, I want you, Christian. This should explode our minds. And, and, and I think the reason it doesn't and the reason it doesn't change our lives is because when we think of God selecting us, we think kind of like God selecting us for a basketball team. I don't know if you ever played like street ball when you were a kid, but uh, you, you'd go out there and, you know, you'd have two captains. Usually the best two players would be the captains or the, the strongest two guys would kind of bully their way to be the captains. And then what would you do? All the kids would line up against the wall and the captains would one by one pick their team. And did they pick the worst player first or the, uh, the, the best player? They pick the best player first. And they say, I want you on my team and I want you on my team. 
and all the way down to the last kid who feels miserable about his life because he's the last kid picked. And uh, looking at my physique, you guys know I was always the first one picked. (laughs) The laughter really does kind of hurt. No, I was was lucky to be second or third if I was playing with, like, people 12 years younger than me. Uh, And yet, when I was picked, I I would get this sense of, of pride. I got picked, and I'm not last. They want me. And yet, what happens after you are selected? Well, you've got to perform. Right, like it's a sense of pride for a minute, but now, oh boy, they actually think I can play, so I got to play. Otherwise, they're never going to pick me again. Next time we play, I'm going to be picked last. And I lived a lot of my Christian life believing that's how God selected me. He selected me because I'm supposed to do things for Him. And so the way that would play out in my life is when I'd mess up, I'd go 180 degrees the other way, trying as hard as I could to make it up to God so I could prove that I was worthy of being selected. But friends, when I say God selected you, he did not select you to be on a basketball team. He selected you to be his child. See how beautiful this is? Uh, There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He talks about how we are chosen, we are not choice. See, the difference is if you're choice, it means you have all the right integrity. You have the right knowledge. You have everything good. You're the perfect one. You're the choice. You're the one I want because of what you can do. But that's not who we are as God's people. We are chosen. Not because of anything we do, but because of who He is. So if you say, why does God love me? Well, He loves me because He loves me. Why does God love you? He loves you because He loves you. And you say, Blake, that's circular reasoning. That doesn't even make sense. But I would say it actually does. At the depths of your soul, the people you love the most, you love them because you love them. For instance, with your spouse, uh, if you ever find yourself in a situation, men, uh, where your wife asks you this question, it's kind of a little bit of a trap, and you're walking into it, I just want you to know... If she says, honey, do you love me? You're, of course, going to say yes. Now, here's the trap. Why do you love me? Because, men, you're at a fork in the road. There's a path that leads to death, and there's a path that leads to life. The path that leads to death is when you begin to explain why you love her by explaining attributes she has. I love you because you have a good job. Or I love you because uh, the way you look. You're so pretty. Because then what your wife is then going to say is, well, what if I gain weight and I'm not pretty anymore? What if I lose my job? Then you won't love me. No, you see, what you should be able to say in a healthy marriage is, yes, honey, at first there was attributes about you that drew me to you. But now it doesn't matter if you gained 50 pounds. It doesn't matter if you lose your job. I love you because I love you. You're mine and I'm yours. Or with your children, there's nothing your children could do to earn more of your love or take away the love you have for them. Why? Because you love them because you love them. Friends, God loves you because He loves you. Can you imagine how different this world would be if we quit trying to prove ourselves and we believed we were loved not because of what we do, but because of who we are in Christ Jesus? Number one, you've been selected by the Father. You guys don't look excited enough. That's okay, I got 13 more. Number two... (laughs) Number two is we are sanctified by the Spirit. So let's pick it back up. Verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient. See, one of the things I'm most passionate about and the reason I think... Uh, God called us to plant in Woodward. As I think back on, you know, why, why did we plant a church here when there's already a whole bunch of other churches? I really believe it's this call in my life 
that I believe God wants disciples and not converts. So what I mean by that is, is God really wants, Jesus really wants people who follow after him with all their life. He doesn't just want people who raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. He doesn't want just people who come down an altar and cry when they're emotional. He wants people who say, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so therefore I reorient my whole life around being like him. I am to become obedient. My call in life as a Christian is to be like Jesus would be if he were me in my everyday life. Now, friends, that's not good news if I'm doing it by myself, because that is a huge calling. How many of you love like Jesus? I'm glad nobody raised their hand. Okay. Landry raised her hand. She might, though. She's really close. (laughs) But for the most of us, we got a long way to go before we love like Jesus. And yet, here's the good news. Who does the sanctification, the purification of us? It's the Spirit. I have the Spirit of God in me. Friends, I would ask you, if, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, Over the course of many years, have you experienced growth in the fruits of the Spirit? Are you better today than you were then? Because if you have the Spirit in you, that should be the natural result. The fruits of the Spirit are love. Are you more loving than you were when you met Jesus? Joy. Are you more joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled? Because if you're not, maybe you're not experiencing the power of the Spirit But for me as a Christ follower, I can tell you, I'm far from perfect. I started way over here though, and now I'm maybe right here. Because the Holy Spirit has been doing a work in my life, purifying me and sanctifying me more like Jesus. That's number two, sanctified by the Spirit. You're still not sold. We're going to number three. And that is we are sealed by the Son. Which gives us to this part of the the chapter that's really kind of weird. It says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient... And to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now I hope you see the Trinity at work in here, which is the very unique Christian belief that we believe in one God, but he has three distinct beings. That there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, so you guys believe in three gods. No, we just believe in one God. Oh, okay, so all those are the same thing. No, 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 they're all three distinct beings. Don't try to comprehend it in your head because it'll make it explode. It doesn't work. There's not really a metaphor that works for it, but yet we see it all throughout Christian theology. One God, and yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we saw the Father, He he what? He selected us. The Spirit, what? He sanctifies us. But the Son, He seals us. And it says through the sprinkling of blood. Now, we don't understand that because we're not Jewish. But if we were, we would have grown up hearing Leviticus. And we would have heard about how the, the blood of bulls and goats are what purify us before God so that we can go before Him. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, trying to make sense of it for all of us who aren't Jewish, says this, Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 13, he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of flesh. In other words, if the blood from those animals purify you when they're sprinkled on you, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, where this really makes a difference in our life is this part where it says right here, it says, He cleansed our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. See, if I really believe that it's the blood of Jesus that purifies me and not my own works, I live my life completely differently. 
because I don't have to hide in shame. There's nothing too embarrassing about my life and my sin to tell you as a fellow brother and sister in Christ because God has already taken care of all of it. That when God took me as his son, he didn't just look at the sin I had already committed, but he looked at my sin, past, present, and future, and he said, I want it all. And on the cross of Calvary, when he shed his blood, he poured out his blood for every single one of those sins. That's why these three girls, as they're baptized today, will never need to be baptized again. You know why? Because being baptized into Christ Jesus is once and for all. He says, Landry, I want all of your sin. When you're 30 years old and you blow it, Jesus said, I already paid for that sin. And that's really good news if I believe that. See, because then I don't have to beg for forgiveness. I live from a, from a place of worship saying, God, thank you for your forgiveness. God, I can't believe you forgave me for this so many years ago and you knew I would end up here and yet you love me still because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm sealed in Jesus. Nothing can take away the love of God from me. You know why? Because I've been adopted with blood. In the Old Testament, blood marked a covenant, which was a promise. Yet you had to bleed for there to be a covenant. And, and not to get too graphic, but the reason the Bible says to wait for a man and a woman to wait to have relations uh, before marriage is because when you have relations the first time, there is blood, which was to signify the covenant of a man and a woman in marriage. So in the same way, the blood poured out by Jesus signifies and binds us into this covenant with God that cannot be broken. That is powerful, my friends. Number four, God has great mercy. Look at this, verse three, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. I don't really have much to say here except for praise God for great mercy. Some of you are like, Blake, I really messed up. And I would say, God has a really a lot of mercy. Number five, I'm born again. Did you see what it said there? Because of his great mercy, he has given us what? He has given us new birth. This in the, uh, the church age that we live in is kind of misconfused or people don't really know what it is. In fact, if I were to ask the average Christian, how do you know that you're born again? They would probably point me back to a time in their life where they're like, well, I, I raised my hand at a, at a church camp or I walked down an altar or I made a decision on, on this date and, and, and I know I'm born again because of, of what decision I made. And, and yet, if I were to ask you about your first birth in the same way, if I were to say, hey, how do you know that you're alive? You would not say, well, here's my birth certificate. You say, I'm alive because I'm alive. Right? I'm breathing. I'm talking to you. I have intellect. I wouldn't be able to do that if I wasn't alive. You're the fool for asking me. What do you mean? How do you not know I'm alive? I've been born. In the same way, if you want to know if you've been born again in Jesus Christ, the way I know I'm born again is because I'm alive. Like, like I'm, I'm weird compared to the world. I'm not perfect, but I have desires. Like I want to give my money away. I, I, I want to know Jesus more. I want to be pure. I, I, I want to show grace to others. See, like when I, when I pass a homeless person and, and I give them money, some people would say, Blake, you're, they're taking advantage of you. And I would say, I don't care. Because God has given me such great grace. And how many times have I taken advantage of it? And yet, does he continue to pour out his grace? You better believe he does. You see how foreign that is to the world? And maybe some of you right now, you're looking at me and you're like, that's weird. I know it's weird. I've been born again. I have a new identity, a new vitality in Christ that's not normal. And thank you, God, because I didn't do that. It's not because I walked down an aisle. It's not because I raised my hand. It's because of why? It's because of his great mercy. He woke me from the dead. How much effort did you guys put into your first birth? 
You know how much? Zero. You just boom, and you were there. You know how much effort I put into my second birth with Jesus? Zero. He's the one who rose me from the dead and awakened my eyes to everything spiritual. That's really good news. I'd rather be alive than dead, wouldn't you? Number six, my hope is alive. Look at this. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into what? Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, some people would say Christianity is based upon blind faith. No, it's not. There was a guy named Jesus who we know historically lived. You cannot find his body anywhere on this earth. You know why? Because he's alive. My hope is not in a deity who's dead. My hope is not in a prophet who's dead. My hope is in a God who is still alive at the right hand of the Father. Number seven. This one's cool. Uh, Landry, you might not know this yet. Amelia, Corey, you guys are rich. You're rich in Christ. Look at this. Verse four. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Man, an inheritance changes things. Uh, I heard a story. I don't know if it's true, but when it's a good illustration, I never let the truth get in the way. There was a, a college kid named Sergey. Sergey was college kid broke. You guys ever been college kid broke? Like there's broke and then there's college kid broke. Uh, we were eating weird stuff. Like my favorite meal when I was college kid broke is I'd get the cheapest hot dogs they have. I don't even know what they put in those things. And I'd cut it up and I'd put white rice in the microwave and I'd eat white rice and nasty hot dogs because that's all I could afford. It's college kid broke. Well, Sergey's college kid broke, eating nasty food probably, a lot of Raymond. And uh, one day somebody comes and they knock on his door and uh, he opens it up and it's a guy in a suit. And he's like, oh man, what did I do? You know, it was, it was my roommate. It wasn't me. Uh, because when a guy in a suit knocks on your college dorm room, something's wrong. And he said, no, nothing's wrong. I'm, I'm a lawyer for your uncle. And he said his uncle's name. And he said, I, I haven't seen that uncle in, in years and decades. The last time I saw him was like when I was a kid at a family reunion. And, and the guy in the suit said, well, you must have made quite an impression on your uncle uh, because he recently passed away and he left you every penny of his $400 million inheritance. How many of you know Sergey didn't go to college algebra the next day? I'm done. Because an inheritance changes the way I live. I don't have to eat hot dogs and Raymond anymore. And in fact, if he did, we would think something's wrong with him. Like, Sergey, this is sad, man. You got $400 million. You don't need to be eating this way anymore. You could hire a chef to take care of you. And in the same way... In Christianity, our inheritance in Jesus is far greater than even that inheritance Sergey got. Why? Well, because he gives us three things. It's imperishable. It can't be taken away. You know what could happen to Sergey's money? It could be gone tomorrow. All we have to do is say, you know what? We don't believe in the U.S. dollar anymore. We're going to this currency over here, and everything we've ever saved is gone. It can perish. But your eternity with Christ, your inheritance with him, it cannot perish because it's sealed by Jesus. And then Peter says it's undefiled. It's completely pure. Money is not completely pure. And then we see unfading. And the thing about money is it fades. The things you hold dear in your heart, I promise you, those possessions you have, when you die, one day your kids are going to sell them in a garage sale because their glory fades. You know what doesn't fade? The inheritance you have in Christ. In fact, Peter says it's just as vibrant today as it was 2,000 years ago, and it'll be just as vibrant 2 million years from now. That is an awesome inheritance that would change the way I live if I believed it. I'm rich. Number eight, I'm being guarded by God's power. Look at this, verse five. It says, you are being guarded by whose power? By God's power. 
through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's why this is good news. Because if it's under Blake's power, I would have shipwrecked my faith a long time ago. Because I mess up on the daily basis. And yet, you know what's really good news for me is that God's power is the one that is guarding me. That, that God is there to say, Blake, oh, you're going down the wrong path here. Let me help you. I mean, I, I can't wait till I see God and he, he shows me my life and, and he says, look, you almost made a really stupid decision here, but I had this person show up at this time. Aren't you grateful? Because I can't imagine where I would be if it wasn't for God's power guarding my faith. Number nine, my suffering only lasts a short while. Verse six, look at this. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. How many of you have experienced various trials? Yes. If you haven't, it's because you're under the age of 16. Life is full of various trials. And he says you rejoice even though you grieve. Why? Because it only lasts a short while. You know what Peter means by a short while? Your whole life. And all the New Testament writers talk that way because they really mean your life is a short while. It doesn't feel like a short while, does it? Because it's our whole life. See, I love this illustration I heard. It's, 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 it goes something like this. How many of you remember your 17th day of kindergarten? Anybody remember their 17th day of kindergarten? If you do, it's one of three reasons. Number one, it's because you are a kindergartner. Number two, you're a sociopath. Number three, you had a really bad day of kindergarten. (laughs) The rest of us, we forget it. But here's what I know about you. Your 17th day of kindergarten, when you were a kindergartner, was a really big deal. Because it was such a small frame of time that you had been alive. That's why people say as they get older, the years and the months go by faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Why? Because it's a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller percentage of the life that we've lived. When you're little, a day lasts forever. When you get older, a year lasts about that long. So what Peter is saying, when you live 30,000 years, because you're not just a bodily creature, you're a spirit creature, and though your body dies, your spirit does not die, it's eternal. And when you've lived 30, 40, 50,000 years, you know what 80 years is? It's a drop in the bucket. So when you come to me 30,000 years from now, and I'm playing ping pong with angels and eating pecan pie for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you say, Blake, do you remember what happened when you were 37 years old? I'm going to have a really hard time remembering Because I am an eternal creation. And Peter says, in the grand scheme of things, your suffering is so small. It's like mothers who give birth to a child. It is painful, and yet you endure the pain with joy. Why? Because you know the pain lasts about that long, but then you have the greatest joy of your life. A child. Peter says that's how our life is as Christians. I'm getting you guys close. Some of you are getting happier as we go. Number 10, my faith is more valuable than gold. My faith in God is more valuable than gold. I wonder if you believe that. Verse 7, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold. And I just want to pause there and say, do you believe that? Do you believe that your faith is more valuable than your gold? And here's what I'll say, and I'm not trying to cast shame on anybody, so please don't hear that. But... I think for a lot of us, we would maybe say mentally that our faith is more valuable than our gold, but with our actions, we don't show that. Because we trust more in retirement accounts than we do in God. We are more willing to do things out of our comfort zone to get more money than we would be able to do more things out of our comfort zone so that we might know God and obey Him better. For instance, uh, the, the Bible has a very clear 
talk about giving. It says to, to tithe, uh, to give 10%. And that's actually Old Testament. The New Testament, we were to give abundantly and joyfully as Jesus gave to us. So as we have it, we, we give. We, we give as to be the most generous people in the world Christians ought to be. And yet, as I was reading some statistics this week, it really kind of made me sad because it says that the average Christian, the average person who calls him a Christian, calls himself a Christian and actually attends a gathering at least once or twice a month, gives 2.5% to church. That's not even half of what the tithe is. And you say, well, Blake, it's hard times. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. And you say, well, Blake, if I made more money, I would do it. And here's the really interesting part, because Jesus is the Savior of the poor. It says people with a salary of less than $20,000 are eight times more likely to give than someone who makes $75,000. Because the more gold we get, the more we want. It's just the truth. I have a house that I like, but man, if I could get a bigger one, that'd be all right. I'd take a bigger one. I have a car I like, but my neighbor has an even cooler car, and so I'd like a little bit of that. The average American spends 10% of their income on fast food. Your hamburger's going to do some awful things to your body. Investing in the kingdom of God lasts for eternity. See, for me, my faith is more valuable than gold. Not because of what I've done or because I'm good, but because I've seen what Jesus has done in my life. Like, I can't help but to be generous and to give towards the things of God because my faith is where the real value is. I wonder if the same is true for you. I wonder if you rejoice that God has given you faith. Number 11, God uses my suffering. Verse 6, it says, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short while, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable. In other words, gold perishes, your faith doesn't. Your stuff's going to perish, faith won't. Is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what they would do when they got gold is they'd put it in the fire for two reasons. Number one, to see if it was authentically gold. Because what happens when you put the gold in the fire, all the dross and the extra stuff burns off. So sometimes you thought you had this big gold nugget and you'd put it in the fire and there was nothing left when they opened the kiln. And the same is true for our faith. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus. Okay, how about the trials that are about around the corner and let's see if you still have faith in Jesus. It's easy for me to have faith in Jesus when I pray and he gives me a promotion and I'm making a million dollars a year. But then the economy does a downturn. I lose my job. I'm broke and all my houses are being taken and my dog's sick and and my truck got hit by somebody over there and, and all of a sudden my life's falling apart. Do I still have the same amount of faith that I had when everything was going good? And Peter says here, just like gold goes into a fire to see its authenticity, your faith goes into the fire of trials. And if you are a true Christian, what comes out on the other side is you are better. You are more like Jesus. The dross of the world is burned off of you with each trial and each pain and each grief that you go through. That's really good news because if I don't believe in God, then my suffering is pointless. But if I do believe in God, suffering is a tool in which God is using to make me better. The obstacle is actually an opportunity. For those of us suffering, that is really good news. Number 12, I'm receiving the goal of my faith. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, him being Jesus, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Do you have that for Jesus? I think of the 2004 Daytona 500. Uh, You guys don't care about NASCAR. 2004 Daytona 500 is the greatest day of my life. Well, Marion Taylor is up there. It's a joke. It's a joke. Calm down. Calm down. I'm just being serious. Uh, 
I'm kidding. But 2004 Daytona 500. If you guys don't know what happened, Dale Earnhardt Jr., the man, the myth, the legend, wins the Daytona 500. Okay? And in that moment, I don't know why. My dad and I are both NASCAR fans, but he watched it in the living room. I watched it in my room. I do know why it's embarrassing. It's because I put on a helmet and pretend to be a race car driver. Uh, and there are pictures. That's why I'm telling you. Uh, and, and so... Dell Jr. wins Daytona 500. I throw off my helmet and I run into the living room. My dad is screaming. I'm screaming and I jump into his arms. And we have no words to say except for to scream at the top of our lungs. It was like we won the Daytona 500. Do you feel that way about Jesus and your faith in him? Is it this glorious, expressive faith? Because for a lot of us, I don't know if that's true. I just really don't. For me personally, I go to an Oklahoma State football game. I have inexpressible joy. And sometimes inexpressible anger. <laughs> and I come here and I, and I worship and, and sometimes I'm just singing the songs and I'm just kind of going through the motions. Man, I ought to, every time I worship God, every time there's a baptism, I ought to shout at the top of my joy like I just wanted a 2004 Daytona 500 because it is greater, far greater than anything else in my life. And I'm receiving the goal of it. Verse 9, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And when I thought of salvation of your souls, I used to think that just meant I don't have to go to hell when I die. I told you guys before, when I was a kid, I became a Christian by getting the hell scared out of me. Uh, I was like seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. And this guy standing up on a stage told me about his uncle or brother or something that uh, he, was, he was dying. And he said, my brother came back for just a minute. And he said, it's hot, it's hot. And then he died. <laughs> It was effective. We all raised our hand. I don't know what repentance is, but sign me up. (laughs) But it's so much more than that. Salvation in the Greek word is the same as healing or restoring or made whole, which means I am right now presently having my soul restored. Because here's the thing. Some of us aren't just headed towards hell when we die. We're living hell right now. Like we're, we're going through painful things in our lives because our souls are broken, because we're wounded. And Jesus says, if you'll allow me in, if you'll walk with me, if you'll come with the power of my Holy Spirit and the help of my church, I can heal those things right now. That eternity doesn't start when you die. Eternity starts right now when you believe in Jesus Christ. Not even an amen on that. And we're at number 12. Thank you. I'm going to have to add six more if you guys don't get a little more excited. <laughs> 13, that which the prophets of the Old Testament searched has been revealed to me, Blake Farley. <laughs> Look at this. This is crazy. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know, like the, the legends, the goats back here, those guys, they searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into about what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, Isaiah had, had a kind of a feeling. He, he was searching Christ and he, he kind of knew that, that what was going to happen, that God was going to do, was going to be later, that there was going to be this, this Messiah who was like part God and maybe part, part man and there was going to be a temple, but it wasn't going to be like the temple he knew. And, and, and he, he kind of had an idea of it, but he didn't fully know or, or grasp what God was going to do. And here I stand, a nobody, a Blake Farley on this side of it. And I get to see things that would have made Isaiah fall to his face. 
Because it's that amazing and that astounding. And friends, if you're a Christian, the same is true for you. Verse, not verse, sorry, I don't do verses. I'm not the Bible. How about number 14? The Holy Spirit himself came to deliver this message of good news. It says this, these things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. That's what I'm doing right now. To you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. It says the Holy Spirit is our messenger. Now what's interesting about that in the Bible, actually what angel means is messenger. And every time we see in the Old Testament that God has a message for people, who does he send? He sends the angels. In fact, Moses was given the law by an angel. And so they would show up in the, the divine council and God say, I got a message. And they say, okay, boss, what do you got? I, I don't know why they talk like that. But uh, they take the message and they would go and they'd give it to humans. Well, when it comes to the gospel, the good news that Jesus has saved us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, the Holy Spirit himself says, no, boys, I got this message. And they're like, what? And they go and it says that they're, they're on the edge of their seat looking over the raptors. Going, what is he going to say to them? What is this powerful message that the Holy Spirit himself would go and deliver it? You know how special you are? I mean, it'd be like if, if the president of the United States or, or the top power in your mind, the governor maybe, he came and he, he said, you know what, I want to deliver this message directly to you. You would feel quite special to know that the top guy took time out of his day to come and give it to you. And what I want you to know is if you're here today, God is delivering the gospel to you personally. He's speaking through me. He's speaking through his word. But you need to know this is not Blake Farley. This is not anything that is man-made. It is the Holy Spirit himself who came to personally deliver the message to you. Amen. The Holy Spirit is far greater than the president or the governor or any other ruler on this planet. You know why? Because they all die. Jesus lives forever. So what do we do, Peter? In light of all that, what should we do? Verse 13, this is where I'll close. Uh, Molly, if you want to go ahead and come up. It says this. It says, therefore, in other words, in line of all that, because of those great joys, how should we live differently? It says, with your minds ready for action. I like the way it actually says it in the Greek better. It says, girding up thy loins of your mind. Isn't that a cool picture? I'm going to gird up the loins of my mind. Nobody else thinks that's cool? I do. ADHD is a heck of a thing. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, hold these things in your mind and it will keep you sober. How many of you know people who are not sober don't always make the best decisions? I mean, like I've, I've never seen a, a, a drunk person and thought, wow, that guy's really intelligent. Um, <laughs> It just doesn't work that way. And what Peter says is if we will focus on these truths, what it'll do is it'll give us the, the alert mind that we need. Let me just take like the three most common sins I think we all struggle with. Number one, lust. If I'm struggling with lust and then I, I remember the inheritance I have in Jesus Christ, you think the puny lust I have is anything towards the lust that the angels have for the gospel? No. Or envy. You're looking at Instagram and you're like, oh man, they're in Italy again. Or gosh, she lost another 10 pounds. She's looking like nothing anymore, you know? And, and you, you know what though? My dad owns the universe. Ha! I don't care about Italy. My dad owns the universe. And he says, I get to share in that inheritance. What does that do to my envy? Or, or anger. And I blow up in anger. I fly off the handle. And yet if I'm meditating on the gospel, man, it's really hypocritical for me to be angry at you. 
When I think about the way I've sinned against God and yet Jesus has sealed me through the blood of his cross, through the forgiveness of my sins, it doesn't matter what you do to me. I can forgive you because I've been forgiven far greater by the God of this universe. I'm going to ask us all to stand right now. And I'm pretty certain we don't have the words on the screen. Is that right? So here's what we're going to do. If you know the song, sing along. If you don't, you can close your eyes. You can stand with your hands in a posture like this. Just worship God. Inexpressible joy. You can't even express it because the words aren't on the screen. So what are you going to do? You're going to give inexpressible joy for what God has done for you. And then I'm going to run back there. And I'm going to take off this shirt. And I'm going to baptize people. And we're going to celebrate and we're going to praise God. And i got to be honest, I'm sweating worse than Mike Tyson in a spelling bee right now. (laughs) Very frightened of what might be under this shirt. You're not going to laugh at me. We're going to celebrate. So friends, let me pray for us. And then we're going to worship. Father God, we come before you grateful for this gospel, this good news that you delivered to us through 1 Peter. Lord, I'm grateful that God has sealed us. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Jesus has sealed us. God has great mercy for great sinners. We have been born again. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance waiting for us. We are being guarded by God's power. Our suffering lasts a short while. And you use our suffering for your glory and our good. Our faith is more valuable than gold. We are receiving the goal of our faith. And we get to see what the prophets couldn't imagine. And you yourself, the Holy Spirit came to proclaim this gospel to us. Lord, those of us who've experienced it, let us worship. Those who have never experienced it, Lord, let them, for the first time in their life, make you the supreme leader of their life and begin to experience this glorious grace. God, stir hearts, open eyes. Jesus, only you can do that. It's in your name I pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.